All right, church. I don't know if this happened to you during that second song, but when we sang that line, death is dead and Christ is risen. I got one of these new fancy watches that monitors my heart rate. I think it shot up to like 250. I had to remind myself, we still got one more song to sing before we hear the word of the Lord this morning. So I hope that you are ready to worship God, not only in song, but also through the preaching of the word of God. And we come to that now, Deuteronomy chapter 11. I want to give one announcement before we pray. Our sound system at GCC is in the process of dying a slow, painful death. Uh, and so this morning, we already lost our under balcony speakers. And if you hear a popping, if it gets bad enough, Jake will just shut it down. And I will try my best to finish uh, with uh, what Ryan likes to call my booming, intimidating voice. Okay, uh, If you're in the back... Just give one of these this morning if you're having trouble hearing, and we will try to either uh, boost the volume or uh, turn up the sound system. I saw Jake just walk in, so relay all that to Jake uh, in just a moment. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to read the Word of God, and we're going to hear the Word of God proclaimed this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your blessing today. And Lord, we know that we don't deserve it. We are an unworthy people. But Lord, you have washed us from our sins in the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we are yours. God, we belong to you. You are our Father. And Lord, you tell us in your word to trust you to give us what we need. And so we do that now, Lord. We ask for bread for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to ask you this morning to stand. Let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to cover Deuteronomy 11. This is the Word of the Lord. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known it or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand and His outstretched arm, His signs and His deeds that He did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and to all of his land, and what He did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they were pursued, as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all of their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them. In the midst of all of Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. That you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. And that you may live long in the land. That the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain of heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are upon it always, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, and your wine and your oil, 
And he will give grass in your field for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no more rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates." that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, holding fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land so that you shall tread as he promised you. See... I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today. To go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of. You shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim. And the curse on Mount Ebal, are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road toward the going down of the sun and the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moray? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it, And live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Church, that's the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. You you may take a seat. Very simply this morning, I want you to be reminded from God's word, the simplicity of what God requires of you and the need for each of us to personally respond to Him. That's where we're headed together. If you're taking notes this morning, four points of our outline as we study through this passage are number one, what is required for obedience? Number two, what are the motives for obedience? Number three, What are the practical steps that we can take to obey God? And number four, the need to personally respond to the Lord. Now, as we unpack this passage together, I want to begin here. I think one of the things that we all appreciate, sometimes more than we realize, is we appreciate clarity. Clarity is a gift. I'll give you a couple examples. One place where we appreciate clarity is in our dating relationships. Many of you here can think back in your life, and some, some of you might have to think back a really long time, okay? You can think back in those early stages of that relationship, that awkward beginning where we don't quite know what we're doing here. What are we doing here? Because we haven't had that DTR conversation Kids, that's how we used to talk about defining the relationship. The relationship hasn't been defined yet, okay? Those were awkward days. Some of you can remember those well, like real awkward, like pushing jello up uh, uphill awkward. 
um, frustrating days, confusing days. What are we doing here? We need some clarity, okay? We appreciate that. Another place where we appreciate clarity is in our relationships between superiors and subordinates. Nobody, and I mean nobody, enjoys being told to do contradictory things. Whether this comes from a parent, a coach, a teacher, a boss, no one enjoys do this. No, I mean do this. No, I mean do this. Okay, that's a frustrating place to live in where it feels like the goalposts are always moving of what you're being asked to do. Okay? One minute you do what's required and the next minute the requirements change. Again, this is a frustrating and confusing place to live. We, we, live, we need clarity. We love clarity. And it's a blessing to us when someone in a position of authority says to us, this is exactly what is required of you. In all my jobs that I've ever had, I've had one where you walk in on day one and there's this really detailed, well thought through job description of this is exactly what we would have you do and this is the path that we're going to take to get you there. And in a sea of a lot of other jobs of you just kind of figure out your job responsibilities as you, as you go, that's a blessing to us. The clarity, this is exactly what is required of you. Okay? And our appreciation for clarity ought to cause us to love places in the Bible where God lays out his requirements with exceeding and exceptional clarity. And I would argue that this passage does just that. The entire book of Deuteronomy has been compared to an ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty, ancient covenant documents, the whole book, where the king, the suzerain, would enter into covenant with a newly conquered nation, the vassal, and the treaty would lay out the terms of the suzerain upon the vassal. And if we think about the book of Deuteronomy along these lines, it's clear who the suzerain is. God. In other words, Deuteronomy is not the covenant terms that have been mutually agreed upon after much dialogue and debate between Yahweh and Israel. Deuteronomy is a proclamation of the terms of the covenant of, that Yahweh the king has imposed upon his people, Israel. Yahweh is the king. Deuteronomy lays out the terms of the covenant, the entire book. You could think about it sort of like the divine DTR conversation, defining the relationship. Yahweh is defining the relationship. I am your God. You are my people. These are the terms to live in covenant with me. There's clarity here. The whole book is like that. And even more specific than the entire book, this chapter, chapter 11, brings part 1 of Deuteronomy to a close. And in part 1, chapters 1 through 11, one of the features that you may have noticed, especially in chapter 6 through 11, one of the features that you may have noticed is those covenant requirements, when they're broadcast, when they're published to us, they come to us in these you know, general, broad duties that we are to have. Love God, serve God, fear God, be loyal to Yahweh. This is like the 30,000 foot view of the covenant. Love Him, obey Him, fear Him. And then the details of the covenant are unpacked in part two of this book, which is chapters 12 through 26, and we'll get into that next week, beginning next week, where we get into the detailed legislation of this covenant that God has made with Israel. And for that reason, the general broadness of these chapters, especially 6 through 9, makes this one of my favorite portions of the Bible. One of my fav favorite portions, it feeds my soul. 
I can remember so many times reading through this portion of Scripture, and it feeds my soul. You know, there's, there's all kind of ways that we can go to the Bible for help. Maybe we need help in our marriage, help in our prayer life. And we go to passages about marriage and passages about prayer. And that's not a bad thing, okay? But there's something helpful of getting up to the 30,000-foot level of, no, you need to love God. And you get that right, and it touches like a thousand other things in your life. These general covenant requirements. Seldom in the Bible do we find such a clear expression of, I am your God, and this is exactly what is required of you. So we'll start there in verse 1. What does the word of God say? Verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God. Friends, this is exactly what is required of us. These are the unchanging terms of the covenant of God. The duties that God lays upon his people. You shall therefore love the Lord your God. Notice that, it, that God is calling Israel and also us through his word to do something positive. Okay, And what I mean by that is some people think I'm a good person. How many times have you heard this? Because I have refrained from doing this negative thing. Okay, How many times have you heard that before? I'm a good person. It's not like I've ever what? Killed anybody. Right? And I don't know who circulated that memo a long time ago, but that memo has made it across generations in every corner of the earth, this idea of that, man, if we don't kill anybody, I'm a good person. I mean, let's be careful not to set the bar too high, right? Okay? I mean, if I don't kill anybody, I'm a good person, right? And the idea there is I've, if I refrain neg from doing those negative things, those prohibitions in God's word, man, I must be fine. And what I want you to notice is that God calls us to turn the corner and not just don't do that, but do this instead. Not just negative things, but positive duties of the covenant. Not only are we to refrain from doing all kind of things in the Ten Commandments, we have to turn the corner and we have to face this question do I love God? Do I love God? Not just do I stay out of trouble, but do I love the Lord? Verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God. He requires that we love Him. And so ask yourself that this morning. Is God the deepest joy in my life? Do I love Him? Is God the most precious thing that I have and I know in this world? Do I love him? Not just that I come to church. Not just that I, that I stop doing those things. Do I love God? Do we love the Lord? And so that's the question that this chapter and really this whole section of Deuteronomy is pressing upon us. Do we love the Lord? And if we thought about it long enough, it ought not to surprise us that the Lord requires that we love him. That ought not to come as a surprise to us. Okay? Love is not icing on the cake like, man, we, you know, we did pretty good. But man, if you love me, that's like icing on the cake. Love is foundational to our relationship with God. Ask yourself this this morning. Who among us would go forward with marriage... If our fiancé says to us at the altar, I feel like I'm supposed to marry you in the sense of I have, a, I have this obligation, this ought, okay? I feel like I'm supposed to, but if that fiancé says, but I don't really love you, I don't really have affections for you, who among us would go through with that marriage? I feel like I'm supposed to, but I don't really love you. And hopefully, nobody signs up for that. Okay? It ought not to surprise us if nobody wants in that relationship. Love is foundational to the covenant of marriage. 
And why would we expect it to be any different with God? Why would we expect it to be any different with the Lord? He requires more of us than a sense of duty and ought and obligation. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things have to be there. But he requires more than that. He requires that we love him. We must love God. And in fact, the rest of the requirements in this chapter, they're basically restating and unpacking and explaining that love command. And Jesus taught us this is how the law works. That the whole law of God can be summed up in the love commandment. And so I want you to see that from chapter 11. We have four different descriptions of what, what does love, loving God look like? What does that look like? And these biblical descriptions are important because we don't get to find love. Okay? Uh, we, love in the Bible is not Valentine's Day. It has content behind it, biblical content behind it. God gets to define love. And so what we see here is these requirements are unpacking. This is what it means to love God. I'll mention four. Number one, loving God looks like obedience to the word of God. Look at verse one. Love the Lord your God. Keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments. And this is something that will never change for the rest of your life. There's not going to be, you know, this is what's required of you. And then 20 years later, the, the book's not changing. Love of, loving God will always look like obedience to the commandments of God. And so don't anyone here make the mistake of thinking that you love God unless you have a desire to please God according to God's word and Jesus taught us this same principle in John 14 verse 15 he says this if you love me you will what you will keep my commandments Jesus says and so loving God looks like obedience to God number two loving God looks like comprehensive obedience to God notice this phrase in verse one keep his commandments Always, Moses says. Jump down to verse 8. Keep the what? Keep the whole commandment, Moses says. Always obey and obey the whole thing. That's what it means to love God. And so we can't be deceived that we, this is the error of liberalism. We cannot be deceived that we come to the Bible like going to a buffet line on Sunday afternoon and says, you know, what am I in the mood for today? You know, I'd really like, you know, these three vegetables and I don't really like these other kind of vegetables. So I'll take some of this. I'll leave some of that. We don't have the freedom to treat the Bible like that, do we? We obey what? The whole thing, the whole commandment. And those who love God, they settle this on the front end. He's the king. I'm the vassal. I, he's the king, I'm the servant, I'm, I'm in a submissive relationship with the Lord my God. And so whatever he says, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing, the whole thing. Not I like this commandment in the Bible, you know, I like this, you know, uh, these nice things Jesus said about peacemaking in the Bible, but I really don't like the sexual ethics of Scripture. I mean, after all, we would just progress way past that biblical worldview in our modern day. We don't have the freedom to do that. We obey the whole commandment, and we obey it always. Loving God is not getting, you know, uh, 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 really pumped up for a Christian pep rally every Sunday to come to church. Just to go right back into the world Monday through Saturday to live with little reference to God, little reverence for the Word of God? Always. He's the King every day. The whole commandment. Comprehensive obedience. Number three, loving God looks like happy, wholehearted obedience to God. Happy obedience to God. To God. Obeying God's commandments, if you love God, ought not to be like holding your nose and doing something that you really don't want to do. And you see this in verse 13. The, the command is to serve Him 
with all of your heart and all of your soul. And that word serve, that's the language of slavery. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that. Okay, That there is another slavery that we have been brought into through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are slaves of God. The Bible really teaches that. And it's not a bad slavery, it's a good slavery. And our God's not a bad master like Pharaoh. He is a good master. He's a good king. And so, in one sense, Israel is brought out of slavery in Egypt, out of Egyptian bondage. But in another sense, they are under a new yoke. They have a new bondage. And Moses charges them, serve him. And he says, do it with all of your heart and all of your soul. It should be our honor to serve God as our king. It should be an honor to us. It's not extra credit on the test. It's an honor to us. It's our privilege to serve the king. In fact, when God speaks, you know what our immediate response ought to be? Every time God speaks in his word, Chick-fil-A. You're thinking, (laughs) that's not what I was expecting. But that should be the response of every single one of us. What do you hear? You ask for anything at Chick-fil-A, what do you hear? My pleasure. My pleasure. You need some ketchup? My pleasure. You need some of this? My pleasure. You have a drink? My pleasure. God speaks in his word. And that should be the disposition of every servant of God that loves him. My pleasure, Lord. And it ought not to be this empty robotic phrase... It ought to come from a heart and a soul that really takes pleasure in doing the will of God. Serve Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. God actually tells us in the Bible that begrudging service is dishonoring to Him. Begrudging service is dishonoring to your master it says something about the kind of master that you think he is he must not be that good he must not be that worthy and so you hold your nose and do what he says because he's more powerful than you listen to what God says in his word Deuteronomy 28 because you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things God says you will serve your enemies God requires of us joyful obedience to his commandments. This is what it means to love God. And then number four, loving God looks like clinging to the person of God. Look at verse 22. Walk in his ways, holding fast to him. And I love that phrase, holding fast to him. It reminds me, this is not just about obeying some external law code of check did this, check did this, check did this, check did this. We don't approach the commandments of God like that. We're dealing with the person. We're clinging to the king. We're holding fast to the king. I love God. That's what the heart says. For the servant of the Lord. Again, this is exactly what is required of us, that we love the Lord our God. But I want you to notice in this chapter... Not only does God tell Israel what to do, he actually gives them motivations to spur them on in their obedience to God. And he does this by holding out the the land promise, the good promise of the land. And he draws their attention to it several times in this chapter. And it has the function in chapter 11 of look at what I promised you. Obey me, look at what I promised you. God reminds them that the land that he has promised them is a good land. And he, and he, and he compares it to Egypt to show uh, the goodness of his promise. Look at verse 10. He says, for the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt. He goes on to describe Egypt as this land of land of scarce rainfall. One of the things about Egypt is that land is more dependent on human labor 
to, to irrigate the crops in Egypt from the river Nile. And they're, they're going to figure out a way to get the water from the river into all of their crops. And he says, Canaan is not like that land. Verse 11, he says, Israel is, is going into a land that God directly cares for. It's more directly dependent on rainfall for the crops. Verse 11, Israel is to depend on Yahweh alone to care for this land. And then you have this warning in verse 16 about these false gods being careful of turning to false gods. And that's not just a, a, a random insertion there. Of, this would be a good time to remind you, don't worship anybody else but Yahweh. The context there is the Canaanites attributed rain and the fertility of the crops to the god Baal, the fertility god Baal. And so Canaanite Baal worship is the reason here that Israel is being prodded and provoked. Don't you turn away from Yahweh. And if you've ever read the Old Testament in the history of Israel, you know this became a major problem for Israel in the land is they forgot where it came from. They, they, tur they turned away and they began to follow these false gods, um, the one who supposedly provided the rain in the land of Canaan. And so God is drawing their attention to this good promise that they have. I'm bringing you to the land. It's not like Egypt. I care for this land. Nobody, no false gods care for this land. I'm the God who cares for this land. And then he tells them at least three things about this land promise. He tells them, number one, if they obey, they will have a successful conquest of this land. In other words, when they go to war in the book of Joshua, they're going to win if they're obedient, if they're obedient. Verse 8, keep the whole commandment that I command you today that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. They're going to fight, they're going to win. He says the same thing in verse 22. If you obey... Verse 23, I'll drive them out before you. Everywhere you tread, you're going you're gonna to succeed in battle. Holding these motivations out for obedience. Number two, if you obey, he says, you will have long life in the land. Verse 9, that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring. And number three, he says, if Israel obeys... He promises to provide for their needs in the promised land. Verse 13, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season. God's going to provide for you if you obey him. That's the promise here. So he's giving them a good land. He's going to drive out their enemies. He's going to provide for what they need in the land. And he's going to give them long life in that land if they obey his commandments, if they obey his covenant. And what I want you to notice here is God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to do that in his word. And, and by no means is this the only place in the Bible that we see this, where we see these provocations or these gracious motivations to obey him. He doesn't have to do that. All he, ha all he has to do is say, I'm the king, you're the servant, do this. God doesn't have to motivate us, but he does. He gives us motivations in his word. And this is what we see here. We see a scriptural principle in this chapter that God will bless obedience. We see this all over this chapter. If you do this, I will do this. God will bless if we obey him. And I do want you to know this needs proper qualifications, but that is a biblical principle, both Old Testament and New. God blesses the obedience of his people. It's not just an Old Testament thing. 
Ephesians 6, he addresses, Paul addresses Christian children in the church and he holds out this same promise that we just read. Deuteronomy 11 tells them to honor your father and mother. And then he holds out this promise to the children in the church at Ephesus. If you do so, you will have long life in the land. God will bless the obedience of his people. I want us to be encouraged by that. God is still in the business of blessing obedience and disciplining disobedience in his people. He's still in, the, in, in, in that business and he wants us to know it and he wants to hold out his blessing as a motivation for us. It should motivate us. It should provoke us on to obey him. We want to live under his blessing. Now I want to Uh, clarify one thing here the relationship in the bible between obedience and material blessing we see that in this passage of do this and you know all your enemies will be destroyed and you'll get lots of rain and you'll have everything that you need this is an important scriptural principle okay old testament and new now the bible never says anywhere you obey god you'll be filthy rich never says that But we do have a general principle in the Bible that if you live in obedience to God, if you live a righteous life under the commandments of God, God will bless his people. Okay, And this includes material blessings to his people. You live a foolish life, Okay, it also holds out a lot of warnings to us uh, uh, of you'll be at the bottom of the barrel. Okay? And so these are principles in the Bible. But they are never to be applied in a mechanical, automatic, never any exceptions, always true in every circumstance way. Okay, This is not how these biblical principles are to be understood. And we learn this from two separate books in the Bible. One is the book of Job, and the other is the book of Ecclesiastes. In Job, we learn that the righteous do, in fact, suffer unjustly. And in Ecclesiastes, we learn that there's a futility that has been injected into this world that these principles don't always work out, okay? Uh, The race doesn't always go to the swift, right? Job and Ecclesiastes teach us that. And so we got to be really careful of reading our present circumstances backwards. We cannot deduce, read backwards, that present prosperity proves prior obedience. You can't do that. <laughs> can't do that. Think, think of how ridiculous that would have been in Solomon's reign. Of Man, look, look at what that man has and everything that that man has. And maybe, one of you, maybe your wife says, yeah, and look at all the wives he has. You know, like Solomon's prosperity obviously didn't prove his righteous life. His heart was turned away from the Lord in the midst of his prosperity. And neither can we see present suffering or present lack in a way that it proves prior guilt. Oh, you're having a hard time. Oh, you have cancer. You must have sin in your life and be living disobedient to God, right? Think if somebody would have brought that nonsense to Jesus, okay? The man of sorrows acquainted with grief, okay? So we have this, these, these principles in the Bible. God will bless the obedience of his people, but we have warnings about applying this in this mechanical way in Scripture, And so I want to hold that motivation out before us this morning. We ought to desire God's blessing. We ought to desire to live under the blessing of God. Not only in chapter 11 do we have duties. This is exactly what is required of you. Not only do we have motivations of look at what God has promised you in his word. Moses calls us to very practical things in this chapter. I want to mention two of them. One is to consider the past, and two is to consume the word. 
So maybe you are just really love the practical. Man, give me something to do this morning. This is for you. Okay? Do this. Consider the past and consume the word. Look at verse 2. Consider the past. Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his mighty hand. Israel is called to look backwards. They're about to go forwards, but Moses calls them to look backwards. And he draws their attention to the discipline of the Lord. Now, discipline here is a reference to the path that God brings his children down to prepare them for the future. It's like being under God's discipline is like uh, uh, being under God's tutelage. This is him preparing Israel for the future. It includes negative aspects, but it includes also positive aspects. As Israel looked back, they learned two things. They learned the grace of God and the wrath of God. They were under God's uh, 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 discipline, God's education program, right? Three times in verses 4 through 6, Israel is to consider, this is the phrase that starts each verse, what he did. Remember what God did. They are to remember the negative. You see this in verse 6 with a reference to what God did to Dathan and Abiram. This is a reference to Korah's rebellion in number 16 where these men rejected God's chosen leader, Moses. They challenged Moses' authority and they learned the hard way to reject God's leader is to reject God himself. And that passage reminds us that these rebels uh, were consumed. The earth literally swallowed them up in a powerful demonstration of the anger of God, the wrath of God. And Moses tells Israel, remember that. Your eyes saw that. You think that would mark you? Think that would mark you? And he says, don't ever forget it. You remember what you learned about God. He also calls them to remember the wilderness in verse 5. And really there are positive and negative aspects of the wilderness. Positively, what happened in the wilderness? Well, they ate the bread of heaven. They ate manna. Manna fell from heaven and God provided for the nation. The, the pillar and the, and the cloud guided them and led them through that great and terrible wilderness. And they can look back and see God's hand. He's helped me all the way to this day. Moses says, consider it. But there's also negative aspects to the wilderness of the wilderness was God's judgment upon Israel. And the consequences of Israel's rebellion were always before that generation as, as one uh, of that first generation who came out of, out of Egypt. One after another, bodies were strewn out for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation was consumed by the anger of God, by the wrath of God. And Moses says, remember that. Don't you forget what you learned about God from your past. And he also calls them to remember in verse 4, the exodus. This is the positive dealings of God with Israel. That they are to look back and they're to remember, God brought you out of slavery. You remember what that used to be like? You remember what it used to be like to serve that tyrant king? God broke that bondage, brought you out of Egypt, and he took you through the Red Sea. And, and do you remember? He drowned all your enemies. He drowned them all in Exodus 15. And you sang the song of Moses. Horse and rider has he thrown into the sea. He broke that bondage. Brought you out to bring you to this good land. And Moses, he says, remember it. Consider the discipline of the Lord. Remember what he did. The mighty deeds of God. Christians, the New Testament calls us to do the exact same thing. To look backwards. To look backwards in our life and to do it often. To rehearse, internally rehearse the mighty deeds of God. I'll give you just a few of these in the New Testament. Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Don't forget that. Don't forget what that story shows you about the judgment of God as that woman 
gazes back at the world after she's warned by the word of God. And God's judgment falls on her. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember what you have learned about the wrath of God, the fearful nature of the character of God. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Acts 20, Paul to the Ephesian elders tells them, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Don't forget what Christ has said. Don't forget the words of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. You weren't always a Christian. You weren't always a Christian. Don't count this privilege as some automatic thing. Don't forget. It is by grace that we are in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember Christ. Remember the resurrected Christ. Remember the fulfillment of the promise of God. We, we must remember what God has done. One of the most helpful, practical things that you can ever learn in your Christian life is to constantly gaze backwards. So you have to learn as a follower of Jesus to preach to yourself. You have to learn that. And folks might think you're crazy, but we are those who are called to rehearse the mighty deeds of God, to not forget these things. God calls us to this, which leads us to the second practical thing in this chapter. Consume the Word of God. How do we do that? How do we rehearse the mighty deeds of the Lord? We consume the Word of God. We remember the deeds of God when we consume the word of God. Look at verse 18. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. God's word has to be in you. And this is one of those things, man, it's so helpful for you to know. This is exactly what is required of you. God's word has to be inside of you. He says, lay it up. In your heart and in your soul. And so friends, one of the great aims of your life should be to figure this out. How do I get the words of this book outside of me, inside of me? How do I do that? Because that's what he calls us to here. Lay these words up in your heart and in your soul. We have here a reference to the internalization of the Word of God. And one of the things you need to know is that process starts with getting saved. How do you get the Word of God inside of you? That process begins with getting saved. I want to remind you that one of the promises of the new covenant that Jeremiah holds out for us, for the people of God, is God promises... Through regeneration, what's he going to do? Write the law of God. Where is he going to write it? On our hearts. God's going to do what no man could ever do. He's going to carve his law. He's going to impress it into our hearts. Know this. If you don't know the Lord, your whole life, these truths are going to feel external to you. You're going to know them at a distance. They will always be at an arm's length. They won't grip your soul like they should because only the Holy Spirit can drive it to the inside, circumcise the heart, write His words on our hearts. So one of the first things we need to learn here is only those who trust in Christ can lay God's Word up in their hearts and in their souls. But this internalization of the Word of God, that process, it doesn't stop when we get saved, but it continues throughout our whole Christian life. We're laying it up on our hearts. We're laying it up in our souls. And so this, this covenant, this, these covenant duties 
They call us to the discipline of scripture intake to get God's word in us. Okay? It's not enough for you to get saved and to sit on your, on your rump and never do anything with the Bible. It's not what we're called to. we got to get it in us. We love God. We have a new heart. We love this. We love God's truth. And now we got to get it in us. There's an image that's been used for a long time by the Christian ministry navigators called the word hand illustration. It's a simple illustration that describes you know, the five ways that we get the Bible from out here to in here. Number one is to, read, to hear the word of God. One of the things that ought to happen as we come to church and hear the word proclaimed is it's going in us. We're receiving the word of God like nourishment for our souls. Hear the word of God. Number two, read the word of God. Every Christian should be in this habit of getting this book inside of our hearts. Reading through the scriptures over and over. The rhythms of the Christian life. And it's, and it's just like osmosis, just doing it over and over and over. We become more familiar with the Word of God. Over and over and over, our whole Christian life. Hear the Word, read the Word, study the Word of God. That means we spend time really thinking through, what does this mean? Comparing it to other parts of the Bible, what does this mean? How does this part of the Bible cast light on this part of the Bible? Study the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Where we're disciplining ourselves to recall what God says when we don't have this book right in front of us. We, we can preach to ourselves the mighty deeds of the Lord. Preach ourselves happy in the gospel because God's word is in us, memorizing the word. And then number five, meditating on the word of God. Like drawing nourishment, slowing down, Considering the beauty of what God is saying to us. Considering the gravity of the Word of God. Prayerfully studying. Prayerfully memorizing. Asking the Holy Spirit, drive this in me. I want to be marked by your truth. That's what this means. Lay this stuff up in your heart and in your soul. The Scripture-saturated life. This, this disposition that consumes the Bible. And Christian, maybe you need to hear this today. Maybe you need this reminder. Maybe you used to pour over the Scriptures earlier in your Christian life. But for whatever reason, you don't do that anymore. You can think back to a time where you exerted yourself. You were stretching yourself out to get that Word in me. And you realize, I'm not doing that anymore. Maybe you find yourself coasting this morning doing just enough to get by, quick microwave devo time, rush time with God. Be encouraged this morning. Be reminded what God is calling us to. Get it inside of you. Do whatever you have to do to get it inside of you, prayerfully, depending on the Holy Spirit. Get it in you. And I want to encourage you, one of the most beautiful things about the Christian life is to remember in Christ... We're a millisecond away from being restored by our Father in heaven. All it takes for a Christian is seeing it, you know, turning with this humble heart, Lord, I'm coming after you again, and our Father receives us, ready to restore us. Our passage ends with this call to make a decisive choice. And this is where we're going to finish up this morning. Verse 26, he says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And so I want you to see <laughs> this choice is set before Israel. It's set before the people of God. you got a choice to make, Moses says. And then he makes sure that we all understand that this choice is a matter of life and death. This is a life and death choice. 
This is not what do you want to eat for breakfast choice. This is a choice that you will make in the present that will have consequences forever and ever and ever and ever. Matter of life and death. And what Moses does, and the Bible does this so many times, is it sets two paths before us. Two ways to live. On the one hand, there's the path that leads to the blessing of God. And on the other hand, there is the path that leads to God's curse. And notice, friends, there is no third way. There is no, well, I don't, I don't really want to obey God's commandments, but I don't really want the curse either, so I'll take the third way. No third way. No third way. A matter of life and death. And from these verses, we learn... That every generation must respond to God. Every generation. Their parents were apostate, unbelieving, okay? And, and honestly, in the grand scheme of things, that didn't matter for them. It doesn't matter if your parents are apostate or faithful. You got to choose. You got to decide. Are you going to serve God, love God, walk with God? Or are you not? Every generation has to make this choice. And under the new covenant, this same thing happens for the people of God. The blessing and the curse are set before us, again, set before all of us. And this happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about it this morning. Think about it this morning. The proclamation of Jesus Christ is the setting before you of the blessing and the curse. You say, what do you mean? God has made Jesus two things, Savior and Judge. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is the Judge. And when He is heralded to the end of the earth, that is the setting before all the hearers of life and death, blessing and curse. You're going to know Jesus in one of two ways. You're going to know him as Savior, or you're going to know him as your judge. Jesus is the Savior. God has set his blessing before us in the person of Christ. How thankful are you for that this morning? That we don't have to tag someone and say, you know, on behalf of the whole group, you go on the lifelong journey and you find the blessing of God where it's hidden. Where is it hidden? Maybe it's maybe he stored it up in heaven. We don't have to do that. It's been openly proclaimed to all of us here. The blessing of God is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come, and what did the angels say when he was born? Good news, great joy, all people. All people. The blessing of God is not hidden. Nobody has to go find it. The, the blessing of God has arrived in the coming of Jesus Christ. Good news, great joy, everybody, all people, all nations. Jesus has promised to save all who come to him with childlike faith. He won't cast you out. This king will never cast you out if you come to him with repentance and faith. The blessing is found in Jesus. But the blessing is only found in Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. There's no eternal blessing that can be found outside of Jesus Christ. None. None. Which reminds us that Jesus is also the judge. Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so friends, I want you to be assured of this this morning. The blessing and the curse of God is set before you in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible teaches that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you will certainly know Jesus as your judge. This is a matter of life and death. This is that decision that each one of us must make in the present that affects our millions of years of our future. Eternal future. You will either receive Christ or you will reject Him. And friends, you better get this one right. You can get a lot of things in your life wrong, but you better get this one right. The blessing and the curse has been set before us in Jesus Christ. He has won the blessing for us. All that is required of us is to come to Him with faith, trusting in Him to save us from our sins. Church, let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning and we ask, Lord, that You would nourish our souls, that You would cause Your Word to bear fruit in Your church. God, we pray for any lost here this morning, we pray, God, that you would graciously give them ears to hear. God, let them hear. God, we ask that you would give them a new heart. Let them feel the truth. Let it grip their souls. Be manifest and, and magnified in this local church as the Savior of sinners. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.